Welcome to Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Matt, and I'm here with Kevin Finn, creative director of The Sum Of, Design Nerd, Open Manifesto, anything else? Not at the moment. <laughs> it's been a long time since you've been on. Yeah, I think I might have been number three. I think, um, we, I think we should come clean and, and tell the audience. I think we've done enough episodes now that we, that episode we did with you, we recorded. It was awesome. And then we realized we hadn't recorded it properly. We had to do the whole thing over again. And take two wasn't as good, but it was enough. No, it was very good. And you were very gracious. So thank you. No. Well, you've come a long way since then. Yeah. Got, got much better mics and feel like I slightly know what I'm doing. We're down here in Tasmania. Uh, we uh, did a Foundry Live the other day. And we're here with Carlo Janeska, who is the head of Urbanite, head of environments for Frost Collective. That's right, yep. We thought it was a perfect chance to sit down and, and kind of dig into your story. You did an amazing Thank you. speech yesterday, uh, which had 280 slides. <laughs> There was Something a lot of like slides, that. but uh, when you were going on, I was, I was a bit like, are you going to get through all this? And you were like, it's pretty quick. So yeah. I know I was watching the uh, the students and they were like scribbling stuff like, yeah, great. madly. So which awesome. was really thanks good. For, thanks for having me. Before we start, I need to shout out to our sponsor, um, our supporter, Streamtime, who's been amazing in kind of helping keep this show on the road and, and kind of encouraging us and um, helping us along. So if you haven't tried Streamtime, make sure you do. It's um it's a, the, the whole system is set to kind of keep you on track. But let's talk about you. Okay. I want to talk about drawing on the walls because that was something that really yes. made me laugh yesterday. Yes, obviously from a very early age I was always um, interested in art and drawing and creation. And uh, when I look back now I was, I was um, quite surprised when I remember recall that um, my parents permitted me to draw uh, on all the walls in my bedroom, just in your room, though. Just in my room, not, not the whole house. We had a, we had a, you know, pretty much a tight, a tight brief there. You, you can do anything as long as it's just in your room. <laughs> um, and really, I, I utilised every square inch. I actually got up on chairs and drew very close to the ceiling. I mean, I was, you know, ten years old at the time, so I couldn't get up that high. But uh, as I, as I got older, I kind of got up pretty high. We moved out of that house when I was about fourteen, so I didn't kind of. So I, I, I get to know, complete my finish my did, work. Did did it get left that way when you when you went out, or did you need to paint it? All? No, I think we I think we painted it. I think before before yeah. we left. But I I think um, the only regret I have is I don't have any uh, photographic evidence. I was going to ask you, did you take photos? <laughs> I was actually yeah. when I was researching my talk, I was like, I'm going to go get into my parents' place, and I was digging through all the childhood photos, and I just couldn't find any photos of my bedroom. I thought that would have been really cool to have a... Gosh, as a parent, you just go, this is awesome. We just, we'd better take a photo of it. Yeah. It's well, remarkable because my, my father was, you know, a traditional Italian uh, dad, very strict, you know, disciplinarian. And looking back now, I was like, that's really quite incongruous with yeah. my, my recollection of, of what a disciplinarian he was and to actually have allowed me to express my creativity, I guess, from an early age. And did they, did they comment on it and kind of assist with it or it's just it was just yeah, your thing they, it was just i think there was never any interference with it and there was no kind of like you know what the heck are you doing here wow. you know <laughs> it was just like yeah just you know that's that's carlo's room and he can do what he wants in there that's brilliant did your siblings have the same freedom uh, i only had a sister and she didn't have any artistic inclination so mm. no <laughs> wow or she did she just got to your room <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that art thing obviously started there and mm. did that continue I mean, was it always, you know, Carlo was always going to be an artist? I thought it was always drawing. I would remember, you know, we'd be drawing my um, 
my aunties and uncles and whenever we go over to family, I'd bring a, a sketch pad along and I'd be, you know, sketching. It was just something that I, part of my DNA, I guess. Mm. I was really something I really was was drawn to and I really enjoyed. And I, I think I was really influenced also when um, we went to Italy uh, when I was 10 years old. And I remember kind of going to um, the Vatican uh, and the Sistine Chapel and seeing all that amazing kind of art. It was really uh, quite a sort of defining moment, you know, really, you know, even just the walking into St. Peter's Square and just the incredible um, sense of awe you feel with the scale of the place. And Mm -hmm. it's really quite uh, quite humbling and you're walking into the, the Basilica and everything's just towering over you and just this amazing architecture. Yeah, it was quite a, quite a defining moment. Because you you showed a picture, I think that you'd done for school, which That's was right. um, I can't remember the title of it. Yes, uh, <laughs> it was a, an ink drawing actually done with a, a 0.25 rotary pen for my high school certificate uh, year twelve major artwork piece, and I titled it uh, a conglomeration of architectural manifestations. Brilliant. I don't quite know why I came up with that, but it's well, the interesting thing though, quite pompous. <laughs> when, when 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 you put that slide up on on the screen i I remember sitting there going wow that looks like it's a photo from a museum or a gallery Mm -hmm. and and then you followed up with saying i did this when i was 17 i almost fell off the chair yeah the detail was it was incredible yeah looking back it's i mean it's actually still hangs in my parents uh lounge room and i whenever i go there i sort of look at it i think wow i did that that's pretty crazy (laughs) it took me about two weeks but it was you know pretty intense as yeah. yeah, obviously, I left it to the last minute to produce my major work, but uh, that's what I was like, <laughs> so put everything into it. That reaction, though, the, the wow, mm. implies that you it's not something you get a chance to do very much now. No, no, obviously, with with my professional career and running a business, it's um, there's obviously a lot of other things that fill up my life and um, obviously got a family. Um, so I like to kind of you know devote some time to my family life as well. You know, so, yeah, it's just trying to make time to do those those things for yourself are, are, are more challenging. Something on the back burner? Yeah, I definitely would like to sort of get back into you know, even painting. I did, I did a bit of painting uh, as well earlier earlier on in my career when I just – more just as a recreational thing, never for any kind of, you know, professional reason, just a, as an outlet. But obviously working in a creative industry, you satisfies that creative outlet, particularly, you know, particularly early part of my career as I was learning there was – there was a lot to, to stimulate me creatively. I think I guess that fulfilled, you know, that desire to create. Is that something your parents encourage, the creative side of what you do? Uh, look, I mean, I, must, I recall that when I applied to go to Sydney College of the Arts, uh, well, I said that I wanted to go to Sydney College of the Arts to study, you know, design. My father wasn't really <laughs> that thrilled with the idea, you know, traditional Italian parents. They kind of like, you know, they want their son to get a good job. They should be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. And so... It took a little bit to get that one over the line, but I think I kind of realised that that was my passion and, um, you know, that's really what I wanted to do with my life. So, yeah. I guess the, um, you know, and this comes up a lot, this sort of topic, the idea, design and and the things you can do with it and the things you can influence, quite a new thing for parents of that kind of age group. Mm. Um, and, and that understanding of what what it would become was just not there at that time? No, look, I mean, obviously we didn't have, you know, there weren't that many options. I mean, we're talking 1984 when I did my high school certificate. Because I look at my, my own children now and I see the myriad of, of, of courses and the myriad of career directions that, that they can take. It's um, probably a lot more, uh, unless you really have 
you know, uh, a calling like, you know, like I, I did that was really unmistakable. Uh, if you're kind of not really, if you're not really sure where you want to take your life, it, it's probably a bit more challenging. I know my son dropped out of his first degree um, doing science because he just, he thought he wanted to do that and I thought that was something he would do, but then he did a year in and didn't interest him, so he went, went, went to work. So now he started on a second degree. So mm. it's just finding a calling is something that uh, I feel very fortunate that I actually was mm. able to find. Mm. You know, from what I've observed, there, there aren't a lot of people that mm. that have that, you know, unmistakable calling. And I feel that it is, you know, even though it's great that we have a lot more opportunity uh, today I and mean, you don't even have to go to university, you could, you know, learn anything online if mm-hmm. you wanted to in your own time. But just having all those options, I guess, you know, is, is a little bit more challenging, I feel, for the, the, the current generation. You talk about uh, knowing where you were meant to be, but looking at your d- career, definitely the first sort of area you you did lots of different types of design yeah my f- my first job um out of um college uh was working for for an advertising agency and i actually thought i wanted to do advertising because my final year project at college was uh, an advertising campaign uh, for hiv um so this was like you know 19 what was it 1985 yeah um the H- hiv was was well, aids as, I, as it was called then was really kind of starting to have an impact on society. And for me, that was sort of one of the things that I thought, well, we need to kind of really, there's an opportunity to do some advertising here that has a, you know, has a, a, a positive cause or it's a good cause rather than just doing, you know, advertising to sell product or something like that. But so I kind of thought, I'd, you know, advertising would be a good area to go in where you get to do um, something which um, I guess uh, exercises my artistic desire, but also has a, a commercial benefit that I can you know, earn a, earn a living out of. I think at that time, advertising just looked incredibly yeah. cool. Yeah. And yeah. I, I know I I think I wanted to be an advertiser when I first started college. Yeah. yeah. Um, just jumping on a bit of a tangent, obviously, you know, Frost has done some amazing work around HIV. Yeah. Um, have you been involved in... I personally haven't been involved in it because that's uh, that's been... Um, that work has come out of Frost Design, one of, the, mm. one of the companies in our collective. But yeah, when we've, you know, we've... We've, uh, we're very proud of the work that we've done mm. in that area and, and being able to contribute to that. So advertising, and then you did graphic design for a little while. Yeah, the agency that, that I was part of, the advertising agency, did a bit of graphic design. So I got a bit of a, a sampler of what it would be like to to design. And I, I was always, um, I kind of, during my college education, uh, I was introduced to typography uh, and uh, Swiss modernism by my lecturers. Uh, particularly Harry Williamson and Simon Pemberton. And so I kind of really fostered a real interest in graphic design, uh, particularly Paul Rand was 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 one graphic designer that um, I was introduced to. And, and I really loved the way that he played with uh, type and imagery and it was sort of something that kind of really inspired, inspired me. So I, d- I wasn't really getting that kind of stimulation in the agency that I was, that, that I was first working for. Fortunately or coincidentally, the, 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 that agency folded when their major client collapsed. And so, you know, 12 months into my first job, I was, you know, looking for, looking for a job. Mm. Um, and it just so happened that um, my art director at the time, uh, Martin Pollard, uh, was, was good friends with, with Gary Emery. And he'd heard that Gary was, um, um, was, was about to open up a business, uh, an office in Sydney. Uh, he won, he'd won a whole lot of uh, work for the Bicentenary I think there was a powerhouse museum doing the wayfinding for 
Darling Harbour, uh, Bicentennial Park, out at Homebush. So that was some big kind of um, projects and they needed uh, an office on the ground. And yeah, I, um, I, I heard that that was happening and I, I applied for the job and kept um, hounding who was the manager at the time of, of, this, of the initial manager, uh, Penny Bowring, and yes. put a, a call into mm. her kind of, you know, every week and saying, oh, how's that going? You know, I'd be really interested. In yeah. oh, Gary's coming up in a couple of weeks' time. I'll organise, a, I'll organise an interview. So, yeah, that was really cool. And, um, yeah, I was, I was the actual first designer that they employed. For, for the for the Sydney office and uh, yeah it was great just give him a job yeah did you did you find a, a transition in, in in how you work from advertising to design or was it just a natural move for you uh look it was obviously um uh, Emory Vince at the time was you know well it was you know and was for many years um, one of the leading uh, graphic design um, studios in the country mm-hmm. uh, and obviously Gary Doyen of of, yeah. of the industry and um it, it was they had a very very structured way of working and so I learned a great deal um, you know even though Gary was in in Melbourne he'd, he'd fly up every mm-hmm. you know, every so often and you know there was a real discipline in the way that they designed and even you know they, they worked within a very kind of particular um, aesthetic architecturally inspired um, obviously you know Gary did a lot of work in uh, in architecture yeah. collaborations with uh, architects like you know Den Cocker Marshall uh, so we had a real kind of architectural bent to our design, even the way that our, our designs were structured. It were very architectural mm. um, and, and very and very disciplined. And I think I learned a lot from that rigor and the discipline that um, you know Gary had in his business. Did that influence you to keep a, a long term interest in wayfinding and, and branded space? Or it was because I mean that was I guess one of the th- one of the sort of the core services that Emory Vincent offered was that was wayfinding. My first first uh, wayfinding project um, that I worked on was designed in 1988 for the Downing Centre Law Courts, and I, I still I was actually there a couple of weeks ago, and, they, and the sign is that was designed back then is still <laughs> oh, wow. still in place, which is kind of says something about the area that I work in is that it has a kind of longevity. It's yeah. you know it's not quite a, the longevity of, of designing a building, but you know it, it has a permanence. permanence. Yeah. So you kind of because that means there's a bit of an imperative that what you design isn't faddish or, mm-hmm. you know, it's something that actually needs to survive and then still be relevant mm. for several years or many years, many decades. I love the idea of you being there and being lost and kind of having to look at the signage. <laughs> 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 it's funny that's when you say lost and signage, I just recall a story, um, that trip I mentioned when I went to Italy in, um, in 1973, being in Venice, being the inquisitive kid I was, I snuck out of the mm. the hotel room and just went for a bit of a a wander sort of through Venice on my own. <laughs> I hate to think what my parents were yeah. thinking and uh, just wandering the streets of Venice. It was you know it was very um, even though it's a, a very old city, the way it's laid out, it's very you can kind of find your way around. I remember it starting to rain and and then I kind of like I, you know I'm, I'm going to get wet here, so I better bolt back to the the hotel i remember running through the rain you know in venice finding my way around just intuitively and it kind of for me that sort of was another really defining moment i guess maybe subconsciously that i guess piqued my interest in 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 wayfinding and how you navigate cities we were talking earlier about um the kind of dual purpose of of wayfinding particularly where it, it needs to be obviously visible when you need it but yeah. also almost invisible not to be so prominent in, in in a space absolutely that's a tricky balance it is and i i feel that the the best 
wayfinding occurs when the building and the architecture and the urban planning is, has been designed with that as one of the key goals in mind. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, if a, if a place is really badly designed, you can put as many, um, mm. you know, signs and wayfinding cues as you want. You know, if there isn't that, that intuition of actually yeah. navigating and comprehending a space, you know, it's really – so, you know, for example, you know, one of the trends in, in designing airports now is that, you know, you should be able to actually see the planes on the tarmac from when you enter the, the front um, door uh-huh. so that you can actually have a line of sight to your final destination. Wow, that makes so those sorts sense. of kind of um, characteristics that, you know, architects should bear in mind I'm not saying that it's not always a priority, but sometimes it isn't as high a priority as it should be mm. in ensuring that that people have a a great experience when they're moving through through buildings and spaces. Mm. I guess it's really understanding the the priority of the of the space. I mean, mm. when you said that about airports, I never thought, but it makes perfect sense. I've mm. come there to get a plane, so mm. I want to want to make sure there's planes there and, yeah, and, and at least orientate where where they are. Yes, exactly. So. It's all about that kind of emotional well-being that you want to – the space should actually accommodate that. I think that that's the function as well of wayfinding anyways mm. is to move people, mm. is to literally yes. uh, allow them to get from A to B in the most efficient or – Exactly. You know. I've seen some of the work that you've done and, and the way you, you do it, it, it almost brings a narrative to the space as mm. well, which I think – so it's, as much as moving people, it's, it's that kind of – building a story around the space definitely i think that i think that one of the th- the key um, purpose of, of what we do when we we've been commissioned to design a wayfinding program or an environmental graphics program for a space uh, there's a, there's that opportunity there to to represent um, whether it might be the culture of an organization whether it might be to, to represent their their values or whether it might even just be to kind of create something that adds another layer of of joy perhaps to a space or you might want to. They might want to kind of communicate well-being, which is something that a lot of businesses are now doing in their when they're redesigning their workplaces. They're really kind of um, emphasising that you know um, they want their staff to be healthy. So a lot of new workspaces now have you know internal staircases that are actually the feature of the design. So people are encouraged to actually mm-hmm. use the stairs. Yeah. And so a lot of the, some of the work that we, we're called upon now when we're designing um, schemes for. A corporate you know, headquarters is actually how do you kind of communicate and encourage the staff, you know, to use you know to use um, the stairs instead of the lift. So, you know, tapping into people's interest now with Fitbits and and you know uh, eye watches with how many steps you're doing today, you know, and that kind of thing. So it's a bit of a motivation. It's, you wouldn't really think we're finding would would necessarily be seen to do that, mm. but it makes mm. perfect sense yeah. to, as we said earlier, move people around. Yes. How do you move them around from a well-being point of view? Mm. Indicates well, move people to a to a stairs, or yes. move, move people to walk across a room to get something that previously could have been next to them. Yes. So, yes. I guess is that something that a client comes to you and says we need this, or is that something that you would say we suggest this? Yeah, look, no, we're working on a brief at the moment, um, and yeah, that was definitely part of part of their their brief to us. Is that mm. yeah, we want you know we have. The way the way we've, the architects have designed the space is around one of those core core tenets of well-being, um, and so you know even the way um, agile workplaces are designed now, there's there's always these different kind of um, uh, scenarios where people can either collaborate or you know spaces where people can 
you know, focus and do focus work. So a lot of the time then we actually kind of design uh, environmental graphics for those sorts of spaces. It's really to support the function mm. uh, and the desired function of that space and to, to enhance that experience for, for the users. So can I get some clarification? We've talked about wayfinding, environmental graphics, space making, place making. We haven't mentioned EGD or XGD yeah. yet. What Are they all the same thing? Oh, or look, I mean, they're all in the same sort of sandbox, but uh, maybe I should attempt to try and give you my <laughs> definitions of uh, in the context of, of what I do. Um, I guess when we talk about wayfinding, at its most fundamental level, wayfinding is any, any device that you uh, insert in a space that facilitates, you know, people finding their way to their destination. I think it's at its most fundamental level, that's, that's what wayfinding is. When you talk about placemaking in the context of what we do, I see it more as what do you bring to a space that contributes the, to creating spaces that um, people want to inhabit. So, you know, what do you what, what do you bring bring there that actually mm. contributes to that whole kind of sense of community, uh, bringing people together? Um, obviously, a lot of our modern cities. When you compare them to cities before the automobile was invented, mm. you know um, there are you know there are cities now in Europe. There's one in Portugal. I was reading about the other day uh, in an article um, in the Guardian where they basically banned cars. Yeah, and then as a result, something like sixteen thousand additional people in the last three years have moved into the, into the city now because it's a place that people mm. you know want to inhabit. I mean, we are we are as, as humans are social creatures. And so when we're designing cities, we need to design um, spaces where people can congregate mm. and socialise and meet. Um, and I feel that, you know, a lot of the, the cities that, you know, were developed, you know, in the 20th century because of the motor vehicle, the motor vehicle took, mm. took precedence. And as a result, we lost a lot of that connectivity between fellow mm. humans. And I kind of, I'm starting to see trends where a lot of um, cities are now being redesigned or, or fine-tuned yeah. where there are, um, you know, areas where where people can, can congregate, you know, walkable walkable cities, you know, cycleways, yeah. that type of thing where, you know, health and well-being becomes more of a priority. I was going to say, yeah, well-being is, is that whole idea of pedestrianising exactly. precincts and that's happening in Barcelona as well where yep. they've cordoned off some of those block areas where in between the blocks is all pedestrianised and cars yep. go around. Yep. And that is to do multiple things. Um, one is well-being for health and walking around and activity, and two is that connectivity of mm. of the the people who would normally not see each other because yeah. they're just getting into their cars or their exactly. transport. It's that whole social fabric that we don't yeah. really have anymore. I remember having a conversation with my mother a couple of weeks ago because I was finding some of the images that I was using in my talk, and she said, "Look, I remember, you know, back in the, you know." early 50s or you know before television came around you know we'd all gather in the piazza you know mm. in the center of town we'd pull our chairs out and we'd you know the, the kids would be playing around mm. and the 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 parents would be chatting and socializing but then the, the tv came in you know tvs came in in the in the sort of mid 50s and then people would just go indoors indoors and then and, you know so that's i guess an example of how you know those inadverted um, negative side effects mm. that technology can have on on people connecting with one another. You know. Speaking of technology, we talked earlier about the restrictions within 
wayfinding and navigating spaces. Yep. But then the innova- innovations that are coming into to the to that kind of world of, of the digital platforms, how how's that inf- impacting the work that you do? Yeah, look, it certainly is. I mean, we've we recently did a project um, in, in Sydney for, for, for Central Park, uh, where we developed a, a, a wayfinding um, sort of soft navigation app. The um, operator was saying there was a lot of people, you know, coming to the site managers and saying, you know, you know, what's this and what's that and how do I find my way around this place? So basically we developed a, um, an app that enabled people to basically navigate the, the precinct and understand where everything was um, at their own leisure, at their mm. own pace. Um, is that supplemented with signage as It well? is supplemented yeah. with um, with physical signage and we had iBeacons that were actually inserted into the sign so they basically sort of near-field communication that they would sort of trigger um, information on the on the app. So there might be one very surface level of information on the physical signs, but if you wanted to to dig deeper, you could basically um, access that additional information on, on, on apps. Is, is that becoming more prevalent now? Yeah, look, I mean, obviously um, Google Google Maps uh, um, uh, um, now offer a service where they can map the insides of buildings. Mm. So if an organisation has a desire to have a digital wayfinding um facility as part of their wayfinding they can actually uh map a map a building the interior of a building for you mm. and actually you can include that as part of the wayfinding i mean we often when we're you know submitting uh, proposals for projects we usually allow a you know even though that it might not be in the brief a sort of a digital discovery um phase in our work so that we can interrogate the opportunities mm. and whether there's any i guess political will within an organization mm. to 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 have sort of digital assets in a, in a building um, because obviously there's there's that whole who's going to look after it who's going to maintain it who's yeah. going to create the content it's not as simple as okay let's just put a digital screen here and you know we'll work it out later it's really it requires a, a plan and it's almost like it becomes someone's job in the organization yeah. to to look after that i guess this is slightly a precursor to when we've got augmented reality and in kind of mainstream, isn't it? Mm. We're, we're finding augmented reality has applications. Uh, we do a fair bit of work, the residential and commercial uh, property marketing. So there's opportunities to use mm. uh, augmented reality where people can actually, you know, uh, explore and understand um, you know, spaces in the context of a physical environment as well. Mm. That makes sense. <laughs> mm, it does. Uh, yeah. It just uh, implies that your whole industry is going to go through a massive change mm. yet again. Yeah. The only thing that's certain is change. So you really need yeah. to stay um, agile uh, and, yeah, and it, it, keep when, up with trends. Again, when you look at your, your traditional wayfinding systems, they, there's a lot of restrictions there. You mentioned yesterday certain typefaces that you... Yeah. You know, and limited materials. But then the digital side of things it just blows that out of the water it's another really. level of yeah. complication look obviously there are a lot of um australian standards that are that govern a lot of the work that we do yeah. uh, in terms of accessibility you know braille and tactile signs yeah. regulations around you know where you need to position signage you know even on um you know when you when you're actually creating graphics mm. for um glazing uh, wall glazing yeah. where you, you need to actually put uh, safety manifestation decals yeah. there's a lot of restrictions around you know how, how thick they have to be and they have to be opaque and how far off the ground so there's lots of real technical things like that but when it comes to things like typefaces um i guess they're not mandatory but you know whenever we're actually looking at you know what typeface do we select for a particular project um, unless the brand dictates that it needs to be a, mm. a particular typeface 
we tend to choose typefaces that have been optimized for wayfinding. Uh, there's probably a handful of those at the moment. There's um, one called FS Millbank, another one called Wayfinding Sands, uh, and also Meta, which was designed uh, by Eric Speakman, which um, has also and then, of course, been optimized. DIN as well. Yeah, DIN for um, yeah. Um, yeah, for highway signs. I think that was designed for a German auto Yeah. yeah. Um, what, what about global society that we live in and, and you know, multicultural? With, with signage particularly, is there a call for bilingual, multilingual? I know in, in Brisbane there's a, a signage system within the city done by Dot Dash, which mm. is multilingual. Yeah. Um, Look, obviously, you know, international cities need to communicate, you know, with a broader audience. And yeah. my, my feeling on that is, is that I would, you know, you're never going to cover mm. every possible language. So I would prefer to use international rec- mm. recognised pictograms because that's yeah. Yeah. actually what Universal communicates language. and people understand. I mean, there is there is a a system that's used worldwide. You know, if someone sees a, a toilet pictogram, um, and unless, of course, you know, it's in the Middle East where they, they've got their own symbols, obviously, because of, of, of their mm. culture. You know, most most people in Western society understand you know what? Yeah. What a you know what a pictogram means. And th- they would work for um, facilities and for directional, but for street signs, you know, y- you've got words. Yeah, look, I think it, I always see sort of pictograms as being a supplementation to mm. the written the written word, mm. not necessarily something that you know, might might work on its own. But you know, if 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 you know, I, I, if I had a choice um, to communicate mm. in an international city, I would I would always go by the way of, the, of pictograms because. That's going to cover a much broader audience. Mm, mm. I mean, you know, if you look at you know Sydney alone, I think we had something like you know ten million international visitors, yeah. you know, last year. So there's a massive audience there, and um, mm. you know, you really need to kind of communicate uh, to everybody. You talked um, about your job being a series of connected experiences, creating a narrative between mm-hmm. spaces, and you, you talked about, I think it was the experience modes. Yes, which I found really interesting that. Uh, can you talk more about that? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Gensler Research Institute um, uh, produced a paper last year um, where they basically identified um, five experience modes. So these are uh, modes that people, or the intention that people have when they're actually looking to to go go to spaces, whether it be to you know buildings, whatever it be, airports, and so they're they're in a different mindset uh, when 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 they actually are going to go to these different places. So. Um, I think the first one is task mode. So task mode is is where people actually have a have a mission um, where they basically need to kind of get to to point A to point B as quick as possible. So typically um, airports would be mm. a, 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 an example of that, uh, where they've actually got to get through, you know, check in and get to their gate as soon as possible. So when they're in that that particular mode, they're focused. Um, things like you know what something looks like is less of a concern. It's more like how direct is the message and how clear is it? Mm. Um, then there's the the social mode. So this is where people are looking to kind of you know congregate and and, mm. and connect with one another. And so in that in that mode, they're obviously, I guess, their guard is down a bit more, and they're not and they're not. Um, I guess they have less sort of stresses on them. So understanding those modes and and designing uh, facilitate those interactions, I think, is part of uh, one of the big things that we do. And then you have, you know, people say in discovery mode where, for example, they might be going into an art gallery or mm. whatever, something like where they basically have got plenty of time and they just want to kind of explore. So things like, you know, apps mm. uh, are particularly good. 
Yeah. Um, you know, I think I was I was down in Mona uh, here in Tasmania last year, and just having a sort of a an app, and I had like you know, three or four hours, and I just wanted to just mm. wander and, and relax. So you, your whole mindset is different when you're in discovery mode. So you're not you you need to kind of cater the information that you deliver with an understanding of the mode. And then there's uh, entertainment mode. So this is where people kind of guess want to just you know uh, enjoy themselves and have fun. And so there's a different, there's a very different mindset. Um, you know, when 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 you're into entertainment mode, mm. you want to really kind of relax and really let you you know enjoy yourself. So understanding what is required to accommodate that is also important. And then finally, there's the aspirational mode. So this is when kind of people want to connect to a higher purpose. Uh, um, you know, for example, if you're designing, you know, so if someone going goes to a gym, for example, they want to mm. kind of be inspired, mm. um, and they want to be you know um, you know you might want to kind of deliver aspirational messaging or, or aspirational imagery that really kind of um, puts front of mind, you know, why they're there. So that, those, those sorts of, mo- they, un- understanding what what those modes are really informs how you, you structure your message and how you design what, um, the spaces. Can you have more than one? I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't, they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're often, you know, um, multiple yeah. modes within the one space. So it's really just understanding that you know these these different kind of mindsets exist and these intent mm. these different intentions that people have exist. So you understanding those is, I guess, a good platform to help you know articulate yeah. what you know what you should be thinking about when you're designing it. So I guess in that regard, context um, is important for each stage in a journey in a space. So one might exactly. be functional, one might be entertainment one might be aspirational exactly uh, and depending on where it could be in the journey of that space exactly. the context dict- dictates what the yeah the i mean when when we typically when we develop wayfinding programs we we look at the 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 actual user journey and the experience journey mm. so you know understanding you know what you know you want them to think what um, how you want them to feel and what you want them to do at every kind of stage in the journey and actually really kind of understand what you need to deliver at all those touch points because it's not going to be the same at every touch point so this whole kind of i kind of like to think of um designing a kind of a wayfinding system or an, uh, uh, as an experience that you need to sort of orchestrate and consider all the way through and it's not a a one-way journey mm-hmm. either it's a okay so you've gotten to to w- w- your destination which might be on the 50th story of a you know, office tower, but then how do you find your way out, you know? And that's the thing that really um, makes me think about the difference because quite a lot of what you're talking about, I think about information architecture and I think, mm. oh, it's very similar. But with information architecture, I I get to the place and then I come out of that website and mm. it's like it's all over. But you have to think about the kind of return journey and mm. making that just as interesting. Absolutely, yeah. Look, I mean, uh, I often find that's quite critical. We've done a bit of work in the health sector, mm. so designing wayfinding systems for hospitals are particularly um, tricky because yeah. you've got people who are very emotional and they might be going to visit a, uh, you know, a sick loved one. Yeah. And so the way you communicate needs to be really intuitive. Obviously, com- oh, most hospitals are, are quite complex spaces. Mm. So even just finding their way out, you know, back to their car to get out of it after they've you know, visited mm. a, sick, yeah. you know, a sick relative or something, you know, that understanding that, that the condition that someone is in mm. is, is very different there's there's you know as you're saying matt there's a there's a lot of depth to this almost like a a science to it yeah 
Do clients get that? Or, or, or do you get a situation where a client will say, hey, Carla, we need some signs? Yeah. Look, it's an education process. Yeah. And um, typically when we um, undertake uh, experiential design projects, we take our clients through, a, um, you know, I guess a, a discovery phase where we basically, you know, get together and do workshops with them mm. to really understand what their motivations are and the aims that they want to achieve out of the project. And we take the opportunity um, mm. you know, in those sessions to, to I guess, educate um, yeah. because I feel it's for, for us to get the best result, they need to understand how important, you know, what we can, you know, actually what, what we're doing yeah. and what we can bring to the table for the project. Does that lead into a kind of a somewhat difficult conversation where you go through the education side to the client and they go, oh my gosh, we'd never thought of it this mm. way and this is awesome mm. and we haven't budgeted for that? Yeah, look, I, I, the budget is always a, a major consideration. Um, but not, 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 not kind of a, a, a sort of a cheeky way of saying that, but m- more because it's not something that people will think about. They think yeah. they might just need some signs. And when sure. they understand what it can do for them and the wayfinding and, and the spatial, everything that you yeah. just discussed, and then they understand that, there needs to be, I guess, a financial shift as well as a mm. mindset shift. Yeah, definitely. And it really de- depends on um, who we are actually dealing with. I mean, typically we are commissioned by sort of, I guess, different different layers or levels. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes we might work be working in commission directly by the end client. Yeah. And so typically when you're working with the end client, they have a, a more aspirational big picture, mm. um, I guess, uh, take on things. Um, sometimes we're commissioned by the builder. Mm. So their imperative might be, um, more of a financial one. Sometimes we're commissioned by a project management company, so their their imperative might be um, perhaps you know getting getting something delivered on time. Yeah. Uh, and then sometimes we might be commissioned by an architect, or the architect or the interior designer. And I guess I guess mm. their priorities are different as well. So yeah. I feel that you know um, if we can kind of get involved in a project as early as possible, even sometimes before. Mm. you know anything is even built where we can uh input on play strategy yeah where we basically the work that we do actually influences every consultant on the project uh you get a you get a, a better um i guess uptake of, of your ideas and a better uh, result end result mm. because everybody's aligned on the principles that you that you develop at the beginning or the outset of a project can i take you i want to take you back to gary emery and then obviously um, Vince Frost joining. Yep. And then the separation. And I guess if I look at your career, that seems like quite a milestone because mm-hmm. I guess what I didn't realize is that you and Vince bought mm-hmm. the company. Yeah. Um, so to, to keep it going. Yeah, look, um, Vince was lured uh, from London uh, by Clemenger's, uh, Clemenger BBDA group that, uh, that owned uh, Emery Vincent at the time. Yeah, look, I mean, there was a period there where, where we, there, it was Emery and Frost. Uh, Emery Frost was the company that was created. Vince was was commuting mm. from Melbourne because he was living in Melbourne, but commuting up to Sydney uh, at the time. He had a young family. So it was obviously a very kind of challenging thing to do that week in and week out. And I guess I guess perhaps uh, as time went on, there wasn't probably an, an alignment between, mm. you know, where they where they felt they wanted to, to go with the business. And so Clemenger's, you know, offered offered um, uh, approach initially and offered the business um, to buy the Sydney office of, of Emery Frost. 
and then Vince approached myself and uh, Ray Parsler, who was um, mm. the senior uh, design director at the time in the Sydney office uh, with myself. Um, and we, we were previously previous to that shareholders in the in the Sydney in the Sydney business of of, of Emery Vincent. So we've had a lot of uh, like a, a longevity with the company, uh, and um, yeah, they Vince said, "Look, you now shall we? You know, why don't we buy the business and and start up the the business in Sydney?" So yeah, let's let's, let's do it. You know, and, was that was that a fraught moment for you, or was it a clear? Yeah, we should do this. Yeah, look, I mean, obviously, you know, big a big kind of change like yeah. that is think, oh wow, okay, how's this going to be? Yeah, so start from <laughs> yeah, you know, from the beginning. Yeah, how's this going to work? You know, I had. Yeah. Uh, was it two thousand and four? Yeah. So I still had a you know a family that was I was supporting at the yep. time. So mm. and a mortgage and all of that, and you kind of all those sorts of practical mm. things go through your mind. And but um, obviously you know with the portfolio that we had, and obviously with you know Vince's amazing international reputation, you know we really kind of went in guns blazing, and mm. you know really kind of uh, hit hit the uh, the Australian market with a with a massive splash. You did. And, yeah. and of course, when when Vince did arrive, he had that sh- solo show in the Opera House. That's correct. Yeah, which, that was that was a, a seminal moment for yeah. the business. That's for sure. And and, and I think that was the, that was the only, if you like, graphic designer who exhibited in in the Opera House. Exactly. Um, so that positioned at least Vince and anyone associated with Vince mm. in a particular way. Yeah, definitely. Was was that something that you saw a noticeable? Spike, oh, most definitely. I mean, yeah. s- suddenly, you know, we you know, we were in the popular press, and yeah. you know, everybody wanted you know, interviews with Vince, and you know, people were getting you know, phone the phones were ringing, and people you know, were yeah, inquiring about you know, working with us. So yeah, definitely, it was it was a, it was a massive thing. I think at the same time, um, we produced the Sorry Trees book, yeah, mm-hmm. which is a bit of a kind of I guess yeah. a, a compendium of um, all the work that uh, that Vince uh, had yeah. done from his London. And, and with that in mind, I mean, Vince has got a reputation um, and and uh, it was well known. And I was like, Matt, I, I was I didn't realize that you were uh, a founding partner in, mm. in the business. Mm. You've always been the quiet one in, in the <laughs> in the in the partnership. Yeah. And no, no disrespect to Vince, you know, he, he's a friend. But it's 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 interesting to see that you are quite comfortable behind the scenes mm. if you like yeah look I'm, I've, I've always been someone that just likes to get on yeah. and actually do do things and get on and get my hands dirty even to this day yeah even with running urbanite um and we've got a team of uh, 13 14 people even now i mean i like to get my hands dirty and get involved mm. and if i can see you know someone struggling i'll chip in and help and yeah. and, and get on the tools and do that because i still i still enjoy you know the actual sort of doing of the work yeah. i don't think i've ever really lost that yeah, kind of desire. I still like, you know, you know, I, uh, I even sort of set on sometimes set myself little side projects. A, a couple of years ago, I designed some furniture for my house. I, oh, right. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, just just so that I can actually kind of do stuff. I kind of still love the craft of what of, of what we do. Not not necessarily the limelight. No, look, I don't, I've never been one to sort of yeah. chase the the limelight. Or I'm a, a fairly private person. I don't like like yeah. that. You know, blow my own trumpet, <laughs> so to and, speak. And I know Vince doesn't um, hide people. He's he's very generous with mm. with you know making sure people are, are given credit for things. But mm. just is it a, is it a personal thing for you that you just prefer to just get on with things and and stay out know, of? I think it's just yeah. I think it's just my nature. I'm not I'm not someone who's a sort of. I kind of I've encountered many people during my professional career who talk the talk, but yeah. you know, <laughs> they just don't really kind of back it up. You know. Yep. And, 
And I find that really, you know, yeah, I just, when I encounter people like that, I just find it really disappointing mm. because I think, well, you know, you're, you're good at talking, but <laughs> you know, there's no, there's nothing, yeah. there's no substance behind. Yeah. And people are just actually, there are people that are actually good at yeah. promoting themselves and actually talking, but they, you know, are, for me, the, the people that I find more value, valuable in an organization are the ones that can actually, mm. you know, deliver. Yeah. That are professional, that have, you know, rigor to, to the way they conduct themselves and are reliable and, and yeah, I mean that's what you know, when you when you're looking for work and when you're people looking to commission you, they want they want to know you're a safe pair of hands. They want to know yeah. that yeah. you're not gonna let them down because you're you know, they're investing sometimes, you know, six, seven figure sums. And so you need to you need to be as professional, mm. you know, as you know, they need to be able to rely on you as they would with their lawyer or, or their accountant, you know what I mean? Was that mm. kind of ingrained in you from from Gary Emery? Because you were saying that it was a very, very structured, very Yes. It was a very of, rigorous yeah. business and there was a real discipline to everything yeah. we did. Yeah. You know, it wasn't um, you know, design on a whim, it was mm. everything was thought thought through. And I think from a very very early part of my career, I mean I was think I was twenty five when I started working for mm. for Gary. Um you know, there was that whole ethos. I mean, even the first month that I was employed, um, they shipped me down to, mm. to Melbourne for a whole month yeah. to, I guess, be, you know, yeah. indoctrinated yeah. into the Emory Vincent way of doing yeah. things. And I still remember sort of uh, turning up at 80 Market Street in South Melbourne and thinking, where the hell is the door to this place? Because I don't know if it, Bad wayfinding. People in the industry would understand what I talk about, but it yeah. was just literally this amazing DCM yeah. design building. It was literally like a concrete bare concrete wall and there was this little door that was sort of very almost hidden to the facade of the building mm. and i opened the opened the door and there was this metal staircase that disappeared into the wall wow. and there was one that went to the to the right that sort of just disappeared into the wall that way and the one on the left was the real one that kind of you know um yeah. <laughs> went up into the into the studio and this metal clanging so it was all kind of orchestrated to intimidate <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, 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 I think that's the impression that we get. There is a um, a sense of intimidating people to get the respect, I guess, in yes. one way. Yes. Um, something we we talked about yesterday, which if you look at Gary Emery and his standing in the Australian design scene, but also the international design scene, and then you look at Vince um, and his standing in the design scene and the international design scene. It's a bit reminds me a bit of Michael Beirut, who went to Vignelli's studio for ten years and mm. then went to Pentagram for ten years, mm. or not ten years longer. Yeah. You got a kind of a similar um, yeah. two giants of the design scene. Yeah, um, that's where your career has has been. No, definitely, I owe a lot to to Gary and to Vince, and I think I feel very fortunate that I was able to you know work with two you know really amazing. Mm. You know, creative people and and get the opportunities to work on on the sorts of projects. I mean, mm. you know, I look back at you know as I was researching my talk for, you know, for the foundry, uh, uh, just looking back at you know the body of work that I've worked on in the last you know thirty two years. It's actually you know like wow yeah worked mm. on some pretty cool projects. You know it's uh, yeah you know it's quite you know, as, as, as you quickly went through yeah <laughs> your two hundred and fifty <laughs> slides <laughs> yeah. 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 I want before we finish up. I, I really want to talk about Urbanite because to me that seemed like there was a that was your chance to kind of step out and really yep. own something. Yep. How did that come about? Yeah, look, it was it was part of the whole um, um, plan that Vince um, had to create the Frost Collective. Uh, so the Frost Collective um, for your audience 
that don't know is um, a multidisciplinary um, collective of um, six um, six businesses. Um, you know, we have architects, interior designers, you know, brand strategists, packaging, graphic yeah. designers, packaging, uh, management consultants. So it's a it's a it's a it's a collective of of, of a number of businesses. Urbanite um, obviously grew out around the expertise that myself and a number of other people that were part of originally part of Emory Vincent that brought into the business. So there's a there's a sort of a heritage and a legacy there of 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 their track record in working in the built environment. And so Vince felt it was obvious to kind of create a separate business um, that would focus primarily on the built environment. And then as a result, uh, I think it was yeah, 2014 that um, Urbanite was created. So at the time, it was you know the work that we were doing in the built environment was just all under the Frost Design banner. And I think one of the motivations for for creating these separate businesses was that um, I guess some of the feedback that we were getting on from clients is that they didn't necessarily believe that we could you know we could do it all like you mean you, you can do branding and mm. you can do you know websites and you can do you know wayfinders like is that, you know, like there was I guess that kind of that factor but there was also the factor of okay so let's create a business that can we can focus on and build mm. and become recognized as a specialist in that area and I guess that was another motivation so you know the work that we were doing at the time was I guess ticking along uh, in the built environment but this this launch of urbanite and this push to actually create a business and you know myself taking the lead on it i think i spent the first six months you know you know pounding the pavements reconnecting with (laughs) architects and interior designers and developers and people like that and just really just starting to get the word out there Mm. Uh, and that obviously you know we've i think we tripled in size and in the first three years um, as a result of all that makes it simpler for a client though as well when they're coming to the collective and they they know which for lack of a better phrase which door to go through yes so if they're coming from the built environment to go through the door, but that gives them an access at the urbanite door that gives them access to the rest of the collective if yes. needed. Yes, Cor- correct. Yes, yeah. and um, I mean often we we as urbanite we work across, um, collaborate with the other businesses, um, mm. typically on 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 projects like um, property marketing projects, uh, where the project typically would come through the the brand door. Mm. So we would for a project like that we would typically do the brand strategy. The naming, mm. uh, the brand, the brand design, you know, the assets and, mm. and comms. Uh, Urbanite would would design you know, the sales suite. So obviously we have a, a interior design component to our business. So we would design the sales suite for that for that mm. that marketing, and then our um, digital team, the Nest, would do the would develop the digital assets, the websites, or apps, or mm. VR, or AR, or whatever it might be that is required for that. So. That's typically how we kind of collaborate across the collective, but more and more we're, f- we're finding opportunities where we're working in, in different sectors um, across the businesses. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Where Thank can you. people find out more about you? So, yeah, if you go to uh, philosophycollective.com.au uh, or you can even go through urbanite.com.au, uh, yeah, that's probably the best place. Kevin? Best place for people to find um, you? Best place would be thesumof.com.au, I think. You can find this episode and more at ozdesignradio.com and you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram and SoundCloud at AUS Design Radio. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.